Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, Which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT and veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care. And this is what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much for tuning in to Cat Disgusted. Today is different. <laughs> I did a thing which I am very proud of, and I wanted to share it with you all on this platform. It has been shared already on another platform. That makes it sound professional already. Um, I did uh, some podcast interviews for Cornell University, and the way that I got connected with this, uh, you guys will remember from my previous episodes, I traveled to Puerto Rico to do the Puerto Rico Spayathon uh, with a staff from Cornell University. Well, the head veterinarian uh, from that trip contacted me, and she uh, they she's very involved in putting on this shelter medicine conference at Cornell every year, and they did a virtual conference this year, no surprise, uh, because of pandemic. And she wanted me to do some interviews with uh, some really awesome members of their shelter medicine community uh, and make a podcast out of it for the conference. And I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds amazing down. So I did two interviews and I'm going to share them with you here. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the extensive bios for each in this little intro because you'll hear it all. So they're they're their own little um, encapsulated uh, uh, productions for the Cornell Maddie's Shelter Medicine Conference podcast of this year. So it gets its own little theme, its own little intro. Um, you'll hear the two veterinarians that I interview, Lena Dittar and Stephen Kotchis. They're both dope and awesome, and you should totally Google them and stalk them on the internet because they're great. And uh, I hope you guys really like it because I had a really great time recording these, and it makes me want to do more interviews and talk to more people um, such as yourselves. And so watch out because I'm coming for you. Hooray. So without further ado, we'll start with Dr. Lena Dittar, the Urban Feline Ecosystem Decision-Making for Community Cats. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the ASPCA Cornell Maddie's Shelter Medicine Conference Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson, RVT VTS ECC, and I'm honored to share with you my conversations with two awesome members of the shelter medicine community. Let's go! <music> Greetings! 
Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning into today's podcast. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lena Dittar of Cornell University. We're going to be discussing decision-making for community cats, and I am stoked because I love me a backyard kitty. Dr. Lena Dittar is an assistant clinical professor in Maddie's Shelter Medicine program at Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine. After graduating from the University of Minnesota CVM in 2009, she worked as a staff vet in animal shelters in the Western U.S. before completing a residency in shelter medicine in Oregon and a master's degree in veterinary medicine and public health at the University of Florida. In her work with Cornell Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program, she teaches clinical year students and interns at the local SPCA, lectures in the veterinary school classroom and at national conferences, and provides consultation services to area shelters in outbreak response, housing and enrichment, and shelter operations. Dr. Dittar's research investigates infectious diseases, adoption policies, shelter medicine teaching, and high-volume, high-quality spay-neuter surgery. She's honored to be serving as an editor for the upcoming revision of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians Guidelines of Standards of Care in Animal Shelters. Lena, you are busy. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) And thank you so much for speaking with me today. What a joy. I should mention uh, that Lena and I worked together in Puerto Rico for the Spayathon for PR with Cornell University, which is easily, oh my God, whoop whoop is right. That is one of the hardest and most rewarding things I've ever done. And the timing of that was, I mean, the world literally yeah. collapsed. It stopped <laughs> right it stopped. after we got home. Yes. It was bizarre. So um, I I love to start with a good origin story, like okay. all good superheroes have a good <laughs> origin story. So I'm curious, how how did you get into veterinary medicine and then how did you get to working in shelter work? Well, so the veterinary medicine one and the shelter one, I guess, sort of go a little bit hand in hand. I uh, went to a very small liberal arts college in Minnesota and I'm not from Minnesota, but I picked up some of my pronunciation there because I lived there for eight years. Um, And so uh, I, there wasn't a lot of discussion about veterinary medicine there. It was all pre-med. And so I was pre-med in undergrad and I was always a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of going to medical school and being a medical doctor. And what made me more comfortable Mm. about that idea was all of the work that I was reading about medical anthropology and Paul Farmer, who was a Harvard MD who works (gasps) in Haiti on with AIDS and tuberculosis patients. And so I wanted to do that. that. I wanted to do be him, except I wanted to have a life and a family and play sports and, um, you know, not devote, uh, you know, break everything so I could do the work that I was trying to do. And so I, I took the MCAT, but then I didn't want to pull the trigger. So I went and I taught um, uh, English in Japan for a year. And I'm a huge Japanophile. And so that's not surprising to anybody. Um, so oh, I while, think I knew this about oh, you. You yeah. speak some Japanese, I right? Nihongo I, kn- I remember that. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yes, yes. So well, the next interview will do all in Japanese. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll review. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I didn't know what to do. I was sitting in Japan in my apartment in um, Kashihara, which is outside of Osaka. And I decided that maybe what, instead of being a doctor, I would write about doctors because I really like writing. And so I did a science writing program at Johns Hopkins University for a year. 
um, after my stint in Japan. And I was not satisfied with just writing about things. Turns out I like to be in the middle of the action. And so I was writing a piece on the dog genome, which was just coming out at that time. It was um, Elaine Ostrander and her group at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. And I said, oh, you know, I could do the dog thing and the doctor thing at the same time, and I could go to vet school, and that's what I need to do. And I can feel so silly that I didn't think about this earlier. And so I did. <laughs> and That's great. Yeah, so that was really cool. But I was still then, you know, got into vet school, and that was, that was great. Um, all of the veterinarians I shadowed ran their own small businesses, and they seemed really stressed out about that. And right. I loved the times when we had people or animals that really didn't have another option who came in and we were able to somehow make things better for them, whether it was, you know, whether it was euthanasia or whether it was some sort of, you know, incremental care situation or whether it was helping owners to be okay with rehoming a dog that really just that spot was not working out for them, for anybody, right. the humans or the animal right. in that situation. Or the animal, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was also, of course, at the same time, because what do you do when you're um, in vet school? You volunteer walk dogs at the local shelter. And so I was doing that and a job came open and I was like, Oh, oh, this is how I'm going to be a veterinarian because this ticks all the boxes. This is medicine and it's dogs and it's cats. And it's also working for the people and the animals who just don't have another advocate, who don't have anybody else working for them. That's right. It's the, the highest need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, you know, it was it was it even dogs and cats? Like you had it like the, either either one didn't like you weren't focused on cats specifically. No. So. I, my dad was very allergic growing up, and so we didn't have oh. cats. I liked cats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My earliest, one of my earliest memories of going to a farm was getting scratched by a barn cat, um, oh, well, which you I, you know, <laughs> clearly was okay with because I didn't hold it against them for any yeah, time at right. all. Right, um, your career opened before you. Yeah, I was just sort of like, you know, <laughs> thrilled that maybe it was paying attention to me. So you were kind enough to send me um, a couple things to, to reference for yeah. this because, you know, I have to say, like, you know, community cat health it's one of those things that i think in our lives is ever present but you don't really think about it every day you know what i mean like you know everybody loves to feed a backyard kitty but nobody's really thinking about the management of the bigger of the bigger picture of that so you know i'm wondering if you could define define what you um what you mean as community cat like what qualifies as a community cat population and then why do they need management you know why why do human beings have to get involved that's a that's a really great question and the reason it's a great question is because there are so many cats out there that are in these sort of in-between situations and so uh, you know, having a, a box for a feral cat, which I define as a cat that is not socialized to people, is essentially a wild animal. It acts the same way that you might act if you were a raccoon or a skunk or a possum caught in a trap. Um, and it has absolutely no desire to be with people or around people, um, engaging with people, smelling people, hearing people. And it would like to mm -hmm. be somewhere else and living its own life. Thank you very much. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a feral cat. But there are a lot of cats that inhabit the same world that feral cats inhabit that are a little bit more socialized to people that maybe they were born to an owned cat and got a little socialized and then they got out and they just stayed out um or you right. know maybe it was a cat that was fully owned and ran away or got out of a window or something and never managed to mm -hmm. find its way back and has adapted to living in that situation 
Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a cat whose owner couldn't take care of it and was afraid of taking it to the animal shelter and it was going to get euthanized. So it let it, they let it go and it has now adapted to living in that space. Right. And those all of those different circumstances um, then lead to the biggest, I think, issue with the feral cats, which is the kittens. Ah. And, um, yeah. The cutie pie. The cutie pie kittens who are still, you know, they can be socialized. You can rehabilitate them to have a social life with people. Um, when I say socialized, I mean to people. Um, although, obviously, they would also need to be socialized to cats. And... Um, that is the major source of issues because people don't like the caterwauling that comes with the breeding and they don't like the um, extra resources that you know, moms might need to support themselves when they're pregnant and nursing um, in terms of food. And they don't like the tomcats spraying everywhere, which is also mm. you know, sort of that sort of, uh, you know, sexually motivated behavior. Oh, yeah. And then they don't like the kittens being bored on their property because they don't know what uh-huh. to do about them and they feel bad. And it's kind of weird to have, you know, kittens growing up in your windowsill or wherever they're growing up or your barn. And then you have 10 kittens where you only had two, 10 cats, then you only had two. Mm-hmm. And then you have 20 cats where you only had two. And now it becomes a problem and you want to do something about it. And that's where the management steps in. Right. I mean, there were, when the house that we moved into in Richmond before we moved in here the previous owner told us that they had a feral cat problem and that he had personally just him one human had trapped and then brought to the local spay neuter clinic 33 cats and now that was within uh, i want to say that was maybe within a year that just just him and the whole neighborhood was doing it so if you multiply it by however many houses are on the block and they're all trapping that many Yes. Well, hopefully that, you know, mean big effort that you do sort of when that resource becomes available to you, uh, when the TNR resource becomes available to you, um, Mm -hmm. hopefully that effort will significantly impact the number of kittens that happen the next year. And so the work, the upcoming subsequent work, and there will be some, is less than there was that first year. So there's a couple things that I didn't think about. Like, you know, one of them was like the paradoxical population increase that can happen when you just cull them. Yeah. Like, I had no idea that that was a thing. So so tell us about like, what's what's the right, like the right way and wrong way to do it? Or like, oh, a, like it sounds like it's maybe a combo. So it is of, complicated. Of yeah, it's really complicated. And that's why um, there are, it's why it's a controversial topic. And so there are some things that we think can happen. Um, One of them is the vacuum effect that you're talking about, where if you remove animals from a population, other animals that are still there will come in and fill that niche. There are resources there to be had for food. And so they will come in and they will start to eat that food. And once they start to eat that food, they will start to multiply. And so you may have, if you have a lot of food, then you will have lots and lots of babies the next year. And then they eat all the food and maybe you have some babies die and adults die. And so the population then eventually comes to some sort of a, a, a sort of steady state as long as those resources remain the same. And this is true of populations and ecosystems, you know, worldwide. It's just one of those things. And so paradoxically, if you um, return uh, spayed and neutered adult cats to an ecosystem, they will consume those same resources, but they will not multiply. And they will prevent those kittens that were never born from being born, but they will also prevent other unspayed, unneutered adult cats from coming into that environment. 
Oh, that's right. There was like an invasion of other ones that yeah. were coming in. That was part of it. I remember that. Yeah. Because yeah, the resources still exist. Yeah. And so, they're, you know, the, the animals are going to come in. Right. And cats are tricky, though, with those resources because it's not like wildlife where there's this, you know, sort of natural um, abundance or lack thereof of, of a food source. With cats, uh-huh. you have people who are interacting with them. And there are some crazy people that feed raccoons and there's some crazy people that feed deer. But there are a lot of people who don't think themselves as being that crazy who feed cats. That's true. I did not know this. I did not know that there was a right and a wrong way to do this. I was like, oh, man, I've just been like, you know, because if you see a kitty, you're like, oh, my God, this is the best. And you put out some of the kibble that you have for your indoor cat. I mean, like this is I never even I never even thought that there would have been a wrong way <laughs> well, and, and, to feed the you outdoor know, kitties. There, there's, I wouldn't say wrong. I would just say it depends on what your goals are and what the consequence, the, the, for the consequences that you're seeing. And so it's okay. not wrong. It's not wrong to, to, you know, to, to feed a cat that you see if they are hungry, but once you start feeding them, they will continue to come back to the food right. source. And so with, with friends, right, I feel like then friends. there's more of them. <laughs> right. And so you're increasing the supply of food in the environment. And the tricky part with this equation is that we would like the number of resources and food available to these cats to somewhat remain the same, if not gradually decline, because we want the populations of those cats to gradually decline as we spay and neuter more and more of them and not have the resources around to be able to, to to supply future generations. We would like to not have future generations if we can manage that. Right, right. Ooh, and you brought up the spaying the and the spaying and the neutering. Now, it does imply that if if you're if you're in a, an urban area and you have these types of cat populations, that there's a place to spay and neuter them. Like that, there's a place that you would go. Like when we were in Puerto Rico together, that kind of doesn't. Right. I mean, like we we build it, we build it in a gymnasium. Yes. So the the shelter role is also something that that I feel like not not every community has. So like, what's what's the best role that the shelter can play? Like, do they does the shelter spay and neuter only, or do they also do other general? I mean, rehoming. Like, there seems like there's a lot of options they could get involved in. Yeah, there's there's a ton of options, and so um, and it doesn't always have to be a shelter. Sometimes there are standalone spay neuter clinics that do a lot of TNR work as well. But um, if you have an animal shelter, generally that's where things t- seem to start in communities because mm. they already mm-hmm. have some sort of spay neuter program um, mm-hmm. and maybe a veterinarian that's interested in helping animals that don't have homes. So the usually you would have a, a shelter who takes in these cats in traps that would then provide the spay neuter services. They would also generally be vaccinated for rabies and right. for panleukopenia, which is a disease that um, can look like a, um, a, a mass poisoning if it comes through a feral cat colony. There's all these just dead cats everywhere and it looks like a poisoning, but really what it is, it's this terrible virus. But so, you know, you would have this arrangement and always if you're looking to do this, you want to make sure that you're calling the shelter and, and arranging when you should pick up the cats. Um, you want to make sure that those cats are in, in captivity for as little amount of time as possible. And because it's really stressful for them. I mean, if you think about it, it's like an alien abduction, right? Somebody comes down and yeah. steal you to their spaceship and they take your bits out and they put you back. And you're like, <laughs> right. I swear this thing had, there were these bright lights and this thing happened and people are like, nah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, they're wild animals, essentially. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, they're they're not. I would think that even ones that have been, you know, that might be generations removed from that cat that they weren't able to take with yeah. them when they moved or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, and so, but there are also maybe some cats that you end up trapping who turn out to be friendly, mm-hmm. and so. There are two options for those cats too. It depends on that shelter. If it is a shelter or if it's not, if it's a spay-neuter clinic, it might have different options. But so some shelters have the capacity to take that cat in and then find it a home, an adoptive home. Mm -hmm. And so it is no longer part of that feral cat colony. And so you've achieved one of the objectives, which is to have a smaller number of cats in the environment and to have good outcomes for those cats that you, that are in the apartment. But there are some shelters where they don't have space for those cats. And it's, it's right. either put them back or euthanize them. And so mm. that is the same conundrum you are in with all of the feral cats anyway. And so why not just put it back? A lot of times uh, there may be, if there are people who are managing those feral cat colonies and they notice that there is a friendly cat, the shelter is not the only way to rehome a cat. A lot of cats mm-hmm. get rehomed because they invite themselves in because they get noticed by a caretaker of a feral cat colony as the one that comes up and wants pets. And that, mm. you know, and then they have a friend who just lost their cat. So then that cat goes and lives with them. Right. And so there are other ways out of the colony besides just, um, you know, attrition. Right. But the whole, but the objective all, I mean, it seems, it seems as though like it's just several ways of getting to the same goal, which is just having less, less of them. So it's not as much right. of a strain on the urban area. Now, one yes. thing that. I did also did not put together was that the demographic of the community that they're in makes a really big difference and that like the the culling of cats now and I say culling like you know like the thing that puts the the, I mean it's stressful for people stressful for shelters where you have to euthanize a lot of them Mm -hmm. is that like they they can inadvertently you could be inadvertently euthanizing lost cats because a a population with a a lower income is less likely to find their lost animal yeah it's absolutely that's so fascinating Mm -hmm. to me i was like oh there's a so there's a whole there's a whole like low income community Mm -hmm. and high income community difference yeah and the same is true with shelters and so you'll have shelters that have a lot of resources that have spaces for adopt near friendly adoptive cats and you'll have shelters that don't. And those do also correspond with the amount of resources that that shelter is receiving from their community. Um, we're also worried about um, the other scenario where you have um, trapping of cats and there's not a good um, communication with what's happening to members of the community. And they have uh-huh. community members who, like everybody likes cats pretty much. Um, right. And there are, I think it's a smaller proportion of people who are really, really, uh, they would call, call themselves bird people. I call myself a bird pe- person as well. I grew up bird watching. I love birds. I'm really interested in the environment and saving endangered species. And so I'm, you know, there are definitely times where it is not appropriate to put a cat back where it is. Mm. Um, and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe euthanasia is the right answer for some c- communities. But in the sort of lower 48 states where we have urban environments where we've already basically shoved away all of the endangered species that are there and, um, you know, completely change the environment because of our encroachment onto their habitats. Um, I don't yeah. see an issue with putting the cats back. Right. Well, you brought up the bird thing. Yeah. We hadn't talked about the bird thing yet. You know, that we have, we have these neighbors on our, on one side and the little kitty that we liked so much that came with the house, that cat used to sit underneath that bird feeder with her <laughs> head pointed straight up and she yep. would just wait 
and just yeah. pick them off one by one. But you're right. I mean, like, you know, I'm, we're, you know, we're in, we're in Richmond, California. There's no like endangered who's a what's it that's yeah. coming to that. But theater. like if you lived but in Hawaii or you lived in New Zealand or you lived in a, oh, you know, a shoreline co- community where they have invader plovers or something like that. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Do not, yeah, don't yeah, put yeah. the cats there, move them away. <laughs> and there are ways of doing that. And if that's not appropriate, then you need to not only euthanize those cats, but you need to have a big environmental management program that continually right. goes back there and removes sources of food and basically a cat proof fence that keeps the cats out of there. And that's great if you can manage to have the finances to do that. The, uh, the tricky part about tr- those types of programs though, is that the citizens who live there also like cats and they will come right. sometimes and they will spring those traps if they don't think that those cats Ooh. are going to make it out alive. And it can be extremely challenging to do the right thing yes. by those cats because you have suspicious neighbors who don't think, they're, they're not informed, they don't know what you're doing with them, they don't know what the outcome for those cats is going to be, even when it's like shelter relocation or moving the cat colony or doing something like that. Such a, it's so fascinating to me. It's, it's such a, there's such a human, there's such a human factor to it because you know that it's, you, you can't have it's not a good situation for the people who are trying to manage the population of those cats to be pitted against the no. population that they're living in. Yeah, no, you it's know? not. And yeah. there are there are solutions for having cats, having a, a catio where they can go outside, but it's enclosed, you know, making mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. sort of responsible pet ownership um, while, mm-hmm. you know, providing your animals enrichment that they need or maybe going out on a leash in an area where you have endangered species, especially bird species, right. but also, right. you know, lizard species, also rodent species, although that's pretty uncommon. Um, and so it's it's really challenging. The cats are introduced by people and they tend to hang out where people are. And the best yeah. solution to all of this is probably just to move the human habitation yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, but nobody's right. talking that's about right. doing that. So <laughs> instead we have to build cat-proof fences. Right, we can't trap and rehome the humans. They're 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 where they, they are. There might be some ethical issues <laughs> regarding that. Be my favorite. My favorite solution would be to yeah, tear down some houses, make right, them move that's, elsewhere. That's and... the, there you go. That's the aliens coming back. Yeah, is what that yeah. is. That's that's the actual <laughs> alien abduction part. Is what that yeah. Is. So you know what I'm hearing from you is that it's an it's an ecosystem. It's not just the cats, right? It's like an entire. Yeah, it's ecosystem an ecosystem of the environment and the people. Yeah, with the people there and the beachcombers and the, you know, all of the different things that we do that disturb habitats. And one of the things that we do is to introduce invasive species like cats. And one of the things that we do is we build our houses on top of nest sites for endangered birds. And both of those things are are unfortunate. Yes, yes. That's interesting. You know, I like that you use the word invasive species because that's really... That's that's kind of that that's kind of what we're dealing with when there's that many domesticated house mm-hmm. cats out in there. They yeah, they're all yeah, they're not they didn't well most of the time didn't start. Yeah. There. No, and I mean if we were in New Zealand we'd be having a conversation too about, you know, the the different other mesopredators that have been introduced and if we were oh, on the yeah. Macquarie Islands we'd now be where they eradicated all the cats and the mice are now predating the the birds because they have nothing else oh. to eat. We'd be having a Ooh. conversation about how to eradicate the mice. Um, but it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge, interesting, very challenging prog- problem. And w- Dr. Kate Hurley um, sort of opened my eyes on this topic about one of the things 
that I think is just really fascinating about 10 years ago. Um, and it was the idea of what, like, what is the impact that we're actually having? Like, what is the impact of us picking up one cat and sterilizing it and putting it back? And mm -hmm. if there are 80 million feral cats in the United States, which is the high end of most estimates, that is, we are doing absolutely nothing at all. Right. And so right. Right. killing it doesn't matter. Spaying, neutering it doesn't yeah. matter. None of this matters. Yeah. And it's kind of a terrible idea until you think about, like, the same is true with shelters. The same is true with, yeah. you know, all of these things. And so what we can do then is, is if we focus then the microscope in a little bit farther, we can actually see that local targeted programs and projects do make a difference locally. And so this is what mm. you're talking about with your house. Mm -hmm. It's right. not all of Richmond. It's just your neighborhood. Right. And it was a neighborhood that had a lot of cats. And there was 30 cats that you, plus cats at your house that received TNR and got put back. And there's one yes. that is now interacting with you. Yeah. And that is, I think, a pretty big local impact. Oh, I think that's I think that's a that's a hopeful that's a hopeful way to to look at it. That if you kind of if you think of it on a smaller scale, it doesn't seem quite as daunting when you've got like the the millions and the millions. But on a on a neighborhood scale, that that's where to that's where to focus yeah. your your energy for it. I'll give you another. I'll give you one more hopeful note, and that is that the other part of the ecosystem is all of the people who work in animal shelters and who work for feral cat organizations who work really hard yes. every single day to take care of these cats. And whenever I see a municipality or a group of bird enthusiasts or um, you know mouse enthusiasts or lizard enthusiasts, whoever it is, say that we should just trap and kill them all, that's mm. what shelters did up until the mid-90s or the late 90s. And it got us nowhere. And a lot of people who worked in shelters were completely demoralized and it's Aww. still an issue. But if, you know, if that is the decision that a community makes, they need to be very, very careful about who they are asking to euthanize these cats because it is a human being behind that needle. Right. And That's right. That is not a thing that I would want to ask somebody whose entire life has been dedicated to supporting the homeless and lost animals. Out of all the people, when you when you think about it, out of all the humans. Yeah, so it's not good for the cats and it's not good for the people. And then the people who think that it's a good solution, they're not going to be happy either because they didn't solve the problem. Exactly. And then they traumatized all these nice people. And yeah. then they're, you know, they're going to go out there and set their traps. And then all the neighbors are going to spring the traps and they're going to be like, this is really hard. It's not working. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's not working. And that's why we like TNR. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, and that's I, I feel like that's it, the the combination of everybody knowing knowing what's going on. That seems to be part of it too. It's like yeah. you know everyone's got to be informed, right, about what the plan is going to be, and then and then everybody can work together. You don't have to feel like people are pitted against each other, or the people versus the animals, or the shelter staff versus the the community. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that. All of that yeah. has to work together. And then I can sleep at night knowing scale. that I am a bird person and a cat person all at the same time, and it's okay that I can you know, think that TNR is a really good solution in some places, in most places in the you know lower 48. And then there are some specific places where it really isn't the right solution. And there are other solutions that we can find. Dr. Lena Dittar, thank you so much for speaking with me thank today. Thank you, really Nicole. Appreciate it. it was so much fun. That's Dr. Lena Dittar of Cornell University. And if you're listening closely, some special guest appearances by the adorable baby George. 
Huge thanks to ASPCA, Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program at Cornell University, and Maddie's Fund. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. Thank you so much for listening.